0: One of the phrases I hear all the time that annoys me is, um, oh, we're not here to handhold the students. I'm like, you're an educator. You're here to educate the student.
1: This is Intelligent Rebellion. Howdy, folks, and welcome to Episode 16 of the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. My name is Ria Mikado and I am your host. Today I chat with Mark Brown, one of my university lecturers from the University of Wollongong. Mark takes us through and reminisces about his 20 plus year history as an educator and also looks a little bit into the future of where he thinks the education system is going. So let's sit back, relax, cuddle up with your favorite teddy bear. This is Mark Brown. Guess what? You're on mute.
0: I always do that.
1: (laughs) Don't we all? My
0: my students always have to tell me, Mr. Brown, you're on mute. And when they say Mr. Brown, it just kills me, Ria. (laughs) It just tells me I'm old.
1: I don't think I've ever called you Mr. Brown.
0: Uh, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Brown is my father.
1: I don't think you've ever introduced yourself to me as Mr. Brown. I I have
0: never introduced myself to anyone as Mr. Brown.
1: (laughs) You sound like one of the reservoir dogs.
0: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I just find that it's all very stuffy and it makes a, it just puts a wall up between the students and yourself if you can't be on a first name basis, as long as it's respectful. By about that
1: age, we'd like to think that we're all adults. And pretending? Most
0: of, yeah, and most of the ones, like when you went through, most of the ones that are at that final stage of going into clinical practice are there because they want to be there. And there tend to be the a bit more mature types.
1: Uh, I, UOW is one of my favorite times that I've spent, especially in any type of education. So uh, Mark, I want to say thank you for coming on to the podcast.
0: Uh, absolutely.
1: But to start off with, tell us about yourself, Mark. I know a bit about you, but only as a student.
0: I was born in Los Angeles, actually. And when I was a year old, my folks moved up to Oregon farm area uh, where my grandparents had retired. And so I lived right next to my grandparents, which was a lovely thing. I don't think enough people get to hang out with their grandparents. And they were very formidable in my upbringing. So um, I I think I owe my family ties to being around family when I grew up. And so family's is extremely important to me. When I was about halfway through high school, I moved to Portland on my own and lived with a host family um, because. I was a swimmer and I went to get better swim training because the town I grew up in was only pool. It was only open three months out of the year. It was there for just before my high school graduation. And then my parents moved there, but it was worthwhile because I got a scholarship to swim at university and it paid for my university education. So I left Oregon and went down to California my bachelor's degree. And most of you students don't know this, but my undergraduate degree was a bachelor's in psychology.
1: Uh.
0: Swam competitively through university and uh, did quite well. I graduated with a major in psychology, minor in physical education, worked in the psychology field for three months. And realized it wasn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, although I'm putting all my psychology degree to good use, being an education person, working mm-hmm. with all the students, trust me. What but, particularly?
1: Um, sorry, Mark. What particularly about the psychology? Were you like, nah? Hard oh, pass. It
0: was. It was. I just thought that. Um, if I continue to be around these people, I'm going to end up like one of them. And I think part of it was because I was at the US National meet, Swimming Championships mm-hmm. at the time that they were assigning placements. And since I wasn't there, I got what was left over. And so I was put with the county mental health facility. Mm-hmm. And that's where they put people that are psychologically dangerous to themselves and other people. And they're, they need some serious help. And I suspect most of them are medicated as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think I got kind of the extreme end of the psychology field. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, I don't think I can do this. Um, And so I went back and applied for a master's degree in exercise physiology. and, And I got my master's degree at North Carolina in exercise physiology with a concentration in cardiac rehab. And then my first job out of university was a university swimming coach for both men and women at Mary Washington College in Virginia. It took a little while for me to get my dream job, and then I got my dream job. And that was um, the coordinator and supervisor of the cardiac rehab program back in Bakersfield, California. And I did that for five or six years and then boarded a plane and came to Australia to do my PhD in 1998.
1: You mentioned that your dream job was to be cardiac a rehab.
0: coordinator yep. in cardiac
1: rehab. Yep. What, what is it about the heart that
0: just? I just fell in love with it. You know, it's just a pump for God's sake, really. <laughs> 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 but I don't know that it was just. I don't know that it was the heart itself or the physiology. I fell in love with the people, mm-hmm. and so this, I guess, comes back to my psychology degree. The underlying motivation for me in my entire life has been helping people, whether that's through rehabilitation for people who have had near-death experiences or some pretty traumatic surgeries and, and um, medical events, or the students. So the, I think a lot of the academics think that students come to university and everything's hunky-dory and come straight through high school and they've got this great support structure and, and students come to university with a whole plethora of other issues that are behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So every student is not the same. Some students require a little bit more um, resourcing and a little bit more support and other students are quite independent. One of the things I've always tried to do is make sure that I'm open and available and approachable for, for people, whether they're elderly people in a clinical setting or whether they're students at the university, they feel they can come and talk to me.
1: Your whole ethos here is that you want to be, you want to help people and whether that is as a clinician, cardiac rehab or helping students. When did you start to lean more towards education?
0: In order to get some extra cash um, (laughs) uh, in in my bachelor's degree in psychology, um, I took up a job as a maths tutor. It's really funny, you would have come through my class when I was talking about metabolic equations,
1: oh, and, um, out, and, I, and, I, and
0: I had to tell everybody, I said, get out your algebra brains, I said, here we go, and everybody gives me this big groan and moan. That's what I tutored in university to make um, extra cash was I, I tutored algebra to students that didn't have that in high school and they needed it in college.
1: Oh my God, I just had shivers, I had a triggering moment when you mentioned metabolic equations <laughs> um, because my math is so bad. To your point where you, you were talking about trying to make yourself wholly available, as a student of yours, that was something that really got me through because I had no interest in cardiac rehab. That metabolic equations completely spun my head around. But as a teacher, as an educator, you recognized that this was not my interest, but you yeah. still took the time and the effort to make sure that I made my way through. And because of because of that, I actually spent a lot of time and my husband's a math whiz, like four-unit math dude. And yes. we, I remember sitting down at the kitchen table and saying, I need to learn these metabolic equations. Can you help me through it? And one of my most fond memories of any university experience I've ever had or any educational experience I had was in that final exam, I did all the working. And I remember thinking, this answer doesn't make sense. And you said to me, let me look at your, your working. And you said, nah, you're right. And I remember thinking, fuck, yay. <laughs> I, got, I got through emphasis someone who absolutely despises cardiac and neuro, you gave me a sense of uh, appreciation yeah.
0: for it. The only thing I really want to give a student is confidence. If, if that's the only job going and they need a job, they are confident mm-hmm. enough to be able to do cardiac mm-hmm. rehab until something better comes along that's of more interest to them. I don't expect any of my students to like everything I like, and I, I hope they don't. I think some students are over the years have been a little bit cautious about telling me they don't like cardiac rehab because it's such a <laughs> passion of mine. And I'm like, don't do it. We need students that are passionate about musculoskeletal. We need Mm -hmm. students that are passionate about mental health. And if everybody likes cardiac rehab... (laughs) And number one, we don't have enough jobs, and number mm-hmm. two, we we're not servicing the other people in the community that we need to service.
1: Yeah, and we have to be diverse by design, and that because that's kind of how the world works. You've been an educator for what twenty? Well,
0: I did the I did the tutoring in university, and then I did uh, teaching at master's degree. Part of my scholarship or stipend was to teach some of the PE classes, um, and then I had teaching responsibilities when I was the swim coach, and then when I went back to cardiac rehab and was doing clinical work, the director of nursing from the local university contacted me and I started teaching cardiac specialization Mm -hmm. area for the nursing uh, department. And I love teaching and I love seeing kids uh, or students um, when the light bulb moments go off. More recently, as education is changing, you get disheartened and you get down a bit wondering if I'm still effective or whether this is really what I want it to be anymore. For all those thousands of annoying little things that you deal with, it takes that one. And
1: it's the same in compo. People ask me, why do you love compensation? (laughs) Why do you work in the workers' compensation system? And Mark, it's exactly for that same reason. Because every now and again, you get that one.
0: And it only takes the one to remind you of why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Education has become disheartening in the last 10 years, and it's getting worse. You do your best for the students, and you hope that they're getting enough.
1: Well, let's. I mean, that's the perfect segue into why a part of the reason I want to talk to you about. Let's get right in it. Mark, like no holds barred. What, what have you seen? What, yes, yeah, what I've seen? been
0: an educator for 20 years. You said, what has been the evolution in that time? E- educational institutions back when I started in 1998 were exactly still that. They were educational institutions. And now they've evolved into a business model. Mm-hmm. And so what they are, are corporate businesses that simply have education as the commodity they're selling. Students are required to pay more, yet they get less less support, less contact with academics. One of the phrases I hear all the time that annoys me is, um, oh, we're not here to handhold the students. I'm like, you're an educator. You're here to educate the student. And it's not handholding. It's disseminating the information and making sure that the student has an understanding of what you've presented. It's not handholding. But I think a lot of the uh, new academics, more than anything, don't have an educational background And that's Mm -hmm. a big thing I see. You know, when you went through, most of us academics had at least a secondary educational degree thing. So there was an educational credential sitting behind our science um, degrees. Now you don't have it. You got young, new academics that come through and all they've done is honors degree, PhD straight into an academic role with no understanding of teaching pedagogy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just assumed you wanted to go into any education to even to become, say, a PE teacher in in what I was doing. You had to do that at least
0: a year. The university used to do a university learning and teaching modules, Mm -hmm. which was bare minimum for what you need to teach in the university. But I don't think they're even doing those anymore, at least not. I think they're they're not mandatory, they're voluntary. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting all these academics, new academics coming in that really don't have any idea how to teach and and what it's about. They're there primarily and only there to do their research okay. um, and, yep. and everything else is secondary. That's unfortunate. And as you would know, I'm probably the outlier and the students know, <laughs> I get this all the time. You're not like the other academics and I'm not because I value the teaching and the education over the research. I know the research is important, mm-hmm. but you know, what pays my salary, student fees. So I think it's evolving into that business model mm-hmm. that's no longer an academic institution. And so I think the education is suffering now. The students also have a little bit a little bit of the blame because I think students don't realize that they're paying for this education, you know, and they don't demand the education. Mm-hmm. The amount of times that I've had consultation hours and no student shows up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're paying for me to sit there. I said, where's your thirst for knowledge? Where is your wanting to know the information? And I think students have become lazy and they Mm -hmm. become complacent. And I think that they just think that things are going to be handed to them um, on a silver platter. And so they don't demand an education. And then you've got, you know, the academic clearly only wants to do research, but you Mm -hmm. know what? They're required to teach. And so demand their time. And I think students don't understand that.
1: So is there a model here in that case to separate those two things, effectively have somebody who wants to just do
0: research and then hire people who are great educators. And, and you're seeing that model starting to evolve. The university that's doing a really good job of that model is UNSW. Mm-hmm. So they are, are actually advertising educational um, intensive positions. So you'll have to do some research, small amounts of research, whether it's in your chosen field or whether it's it's research within education. But your job is coordination and teaching primarily. I was lucky, Rhea, because I finally, after years of beating down the door, was able to get my position description changed. Mine now is 60% teaching instead of 40, because I do a lot more teaching than most people do. And then I do 30% governance because I'm the academic program director and I do a lot more of the coordination stuff. Um, And I only do 10% research now. So it reflects what I do a little bit more. What are you glad that's gone from education? Well, one thing I do like that's gone is they've the good old boy system. Mm-hmm. There used to be the good old boy system and a lot and so there was a lot more of this favoritism so if you were in the in group of academics, then you got promoted and and down so it's a lot more structured and a lot more transparent yeah. as to what you need to do in order to get um promoted. There was a lot of sexual harassment um wow. you know what what you would classify as sexual harassment nowadays yeah. was going on back then, but times have evolved, mm-hmm. so I think there's less bullying, those sorts of undertones in the university because of the way society has evolved has gone by the wayside and in some ways, working conditions are better. However, because it's a corporate entity now, they've gone more towards casualizing the workforce Mm
1: -hmm. instead
0: of having permanent tenure track positions. Mm -hmm. I think Greg Peoples and I were one of the last two people to get tenure track positions back in 2007. And the vast majority of the people now are Mm -hmm. on these um, five-year fixed term contracts. And if there's not enough students, you don't have a job.
1: Obviously, that's going to affect the career of being
0: an educator. Yes. So I think a lot of people, and that may be why people focus on all that research, so they can get those promotions and, and find themselves valuable to the university so they don't get sacked. There's a lot of pressures. I'm thankful that we have the union. <laughs> <laughs> the other question you had, the things that you wish were still around, collegiality. There's very little collegiality. You know, When I first got to University of Wollongong, if you went down the corridor of the academics, you had everyone's door open, now everyone's door is shut. Mm-hmm. No one talks to each other. There isn't morning tea where everybody gets together and talks or brainstorms ideas or things like that. Everyone is this independent person who just happens to work in the school.
1: What's your hypothesis about why there's a change there?
0: I, I think, well, I'm, I'm becoming a cynic Rhea as I get older. And I look at, at society in general,
1: mm-hmm.
0: selfish, and they don't care about anyone else. They're, they're only out for themselves. And as long as it doesn't concern them, then it doesn't affect them. And so I think that a lot of the academics you see are just, they do their own thing Mm -hmm. and you get very little assistance outside of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I had one person, I asked them if they would help me with something and their comment to me, oh, I don't think that'll work into my workload. I'm only asking you to help me for an hour.
1: Everything that intelligent rebellion and what I've been doing about is about community. It's about yeah. knowledge exchange. It's about, we can't know everything. It's about building the library of people right now. I've only got volume R of world book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I kind of need, I kind of need M and N and, and the yeah. whole thing, but the only way to do that is to reach out to community and for yeah. people to share their stories. Yeah. So I, I understand the cynicism. It's the other thing I think around that is Surely, surely there are people out there who kind will challenge that cynicism or that you've had those Um,
0: experiences. Yeah, we try. Um, But the the other thing that I've noticed over the years is that and you can look at Donald Trump. Here's a good Mm -hmm. example. You've got the leader of the United States. He sets a tone for what's acceptable for everyone else. So when he goes out and makes fun of disabled people mm-hmm. on national television, it tells everyone else that it's okay for them to do that. And so I think that the leadership at the university is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They set the tone for the academics within there. And when you don't have good leadership at the top, it trickles down, comes a toxic or just a non-functional environment. It's this
1: running theme with most people that I'm talking to right now that- that the business models for what we do has changed. Yes. And that seems to be the very common theme when I ask, where have we fucked this up? And I was like, it's the money. It's a business model. Look at workers' compensation. Look at rehab providing. We have giant companies who are owned by yep. international conglomerates. Yeah. How is that ethical? How is there no conflict of interest there? Yep. And, and then people wonder, oh well, wh- why are the return to work statistics so bad? <laughs>
0: <Wow>. Yeah, and <laughs> and it's it's really interesting. I, I said to Angela Douglas, you know Angela. Yeah, I know Angela. I, I said to Angela, I said, I said the two things that have caused the demise of our society, greed and selfishness. Mm -hmm. And it's those two things. And until the human race can get a a handle on that, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I was talking to a psychologist, how did we get to this point where Mm -hmm. management has become so dysfunctional and it's such a toxic environment at work? And her comment to me was, we've always had narcissists and workplace psychopaths within all industries and all professions and all organizations. But the thing was, is that they were outnumbered significantly by people who weren't. And now what you're seeing is because of the greed, the selfishness, the me attitude and so mm-hmm. forth, you're getting more of these narcissists in your workplace and they're starting to outweigh the people that keep everything in check.
1: Yeah. And though I think also markets, as you pointed to, because the, the heads of these organizations and even yes. the president of the United States at one stage yes. gave people permission to be assholes. Yes.
0: That did. And it's yep, like, absolutely. oh,
1: hey, I see you go out and be awful because yeah. now you're allowed to do that.
0: It's funny, though, because it's not just the university setting, <laughs> Ria. My partner you know, says that his business is just as bad. The, uh, the leadership, mm-hmm. um, I, you talk to nearly anyone and I, I will defy you to find too many people that say that their leadership is great, supportive, mm-hmm. fantastic, whatever. Um, so it's all at the top and it trickles down.
1: Yeah. Look, we're trying really hard with Intelligent Rebellion. We're trying to find these people. <laughs> like, we're Which trying. To, we're trying really hard to find and celebrate the humans yeah. and give them a voice because for a long time, um, I mean, hello, look at me. I'm, I'm a migrant, I'm female, and I'm short as shit. So... <laughs> <laughs> to try to find a platform and in a position of leadership is has been a struggle for yeah. me. Like it always has been, and I feel like I always have to work so much harder than the next person. And when I do get that position, like I can't fuck it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the because that, the pressure is is certainly on there. I want to move to the diversity thing because you pointed yeah. to the whole idea of you're kind of glad that sexual harassment and, and what is now seen as acceptable behavior in work. Yeah. Does that then also maybe, or does it not, I don't know, open up more diversity or do you find that that's still that mentality with the psychopath and the leadership still kind of keeps it as a bit of a boys club?
0: No, I think things are opening up, but it's interesting, Rhea, because when you're talking about diversity, Uh there are people that actually believe it. And then there's people that just say the buzzwords Uh so they can fit in to the way society's heading. They don't believe it for one minute and their behaviors actually reflect that. Mm -hmm. So when you actually see them operate at work, when they're bullies, when they are aggressive and things like that, that's not inclusivity. That's actually bullying and harassment, which is what we're totally against. And these are the people that throw out the buzzwords. But you do have the other people who are really authentic about inclusivity and you'll know, you know me, I'm i am not forwards and coming backwards and I say what I think. As a gay man, um, it was really interesting for me because I was approached by the university to be what they call a LGBTI advocate or... Mm-hmm. Um, Champion or something like that, and they wanted me to put a big, huge sticker on my door, on the office door, Mm -hmm. to identify myself as an oh, it's an ally, ally, LGBTI ally, Mm -hmm. and they wanted me to put the sticker on my door in order to show students that if they needed to talk to someone, this was a safe place to do it. And they contacted me. I felt like I got profiled.
1: (laughs) Well, that's supposed to get through my head.
0: (laughs) Probably did. And they contacted me and asked me if I would be an ally, and Mm -hmm. I absolutely. refused. Uh I just said, listen, I said two things. Number one, you're asking me who's still going for promotions and things like that to put something like that on my door. And there are still academics at the higher levels around that still are homophobic, you know? And it's just like, I'm putting a target on my back. I said, number two, when I came out as a gay man, Mm -hmm. the last thing I wanted to do was draw attention to myself. You're still kind of in that unsure stage of your life. And I would never have walked through a door that identified, hey- (laughs)
1: So
0: so I I contacted the people and I said, listen, I said, if a student needs to speak to me or needs to speak to someone who is sympathetic to what they're going through, Mm -hmm. I am all for you giving them my contact details Mm -hmm. and having them contact me for a consultation and talk as long as they want to talk, but I won't do it your way. Yeah. That inclusivity, I think sometimes they don't quite think of.
1: Yeah. It's kind of really simplistic in the way it's not as simple as that everyone like you just don't start marking people and saying oh hey we have we're an inclusive organization because we've ticked off the united benetton ad in saying that though i've had a a really recent battle where i sit in the space and i was doing a a talk um somewhere and i spoke about genetic editing for rice and i said oh you know because rice is important for people like me i'm a rice girl And I remember um, straight after that, someone came up to me and she was Asian and she said, I've been coming to these things for a really long time, but it's really nice to see somebody who's another rice girl, stand up on stage and, and speak with such authority. For the first time, I think in my life, the gravity of that, because I've never, ever wanted to lean into the racial thing. I've always tried to excuse, yeah. like when I don't get picked for certain things. And I've written about this in one of my articles. You sort of excuse why you didn't get chosen. And then you kind of run out of excuses as to, well, I have all the qualifications. I have all the expertise. Like, what is that? Yeah. Um, and you I, never want to turn to that.
0: But I think there is uh, underlying. So to answer your question in a very simple explanation, I think particularly the university and even the broader community, Uh I think do diversity and inclusivity at a superficial level. So they all look to be doing the right thing. Uh But when it really comes down to it, I I don't think it's that authentic. I call people by their name in yeah. the class. I don't care whether they're from an Asian mm-hmm. background or white or, or what, they're my students. And I mm-hmm. call them by their chosen name. If they decide that they're going through transition and they wanna be called something else, mm-hmm. then I just say, can you please let me know? I'm happy to call you whatever you wanna be called. I, I don't draw a lot of attention to the differences between mm-hmm. my students. I think that's yeah. where we go wrong is when we start focusing on the differences. I focus on the similarities. They're Mm -hmm. all students of mine who all deserve the same opportunity, who all need the same education.
1: What do you want people to know about educators and university educators in
0: in particular? It's it's different now. I used to be able to lump us all together, Ria, and now I can't because Mm -hmm. I don't honestly believe that... Um, A lot of the university educators have the best interest of the students at heart. Mm -hmm. I think students are a necessary evil so they can be on campus to do their research. And if they didn't have to teach, they wouldn't. But Mm -hmm. with that said, you've got those pockets. So in and amongst all these changes and the corporatization of the university, you've got people like me, people like Deirdre, Mm -hmm. who are still busting our humps within what we have control over to make sure that the students that come through our subjects are Mm -hmm. getting their money's worth out of the education that they want. I think in general, what I want students to get out of it is don't go to university just because it seems to be the thing to do. Yeah. I see so many students that are coming to university now that don't want to be there. Take some time off, go to TAFE, do a trade. Um, not everybody's cut out for university, and this pressure that everyone has to go to university is crazy. I think we're seeing a lot more mental health issues because people are getting into situations that are not favorable for them. And it's very stressful. I mean, you're paying a hex debt for something you're never going to finish. I mean, where do you think those pressures lie? It's family. The majority of it's family, Rhea, can't fault the parents. They want the best for the child. They want a better life for their child. And I think the parents think that university degree is going to be that better life. And that's not necessarily so. Mm -hmm. There's many other ways where students can make a a decent living and and have a very happy and fulfilling life. A lot of students come through university, get a degree, and never actually use what they got their degree in (laughs) um, to to earn a living.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've really moved away, very much away yeah. from and, and what well, we, I've been doing. Well, taught. we teach,
0: well, we teach work, we teach workers' comp now, but we never oh, did. Oh my God! We, well, <laughs> no, but when you came through, it wasn't on the SSA agenda. No, and we've been. Yeah. And Tim, Tim, Miller developed our work health and safety course back in 2016, so we've been teaching it since then. That's so, and cool. we're and we're giving people the understanding that they can be providers, but they can also be case managers.
1: And that's that's where. A lot of the jobs are, but that's where the big money is at the moment. Well, I mean, looking at case managers, rehab consultants, upwards of yeah, a hundred thousand dollars a year. True. You can't you can't compete with that at a hospital cardiac rehab unit.
0: No, you can't. You know, but at the end of the day, I, I also look at students and I'm like, if you're going to come to the university, find an academic who can be a mentor, who is mm-hmm. going to be sympathetic or empathetic to a student and surround yourself with a good support structure because it is a bit of a minefield. I mean, one of the things I find with um, students these days is they all fly under the radar. Nobody wants to raise their hand. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to talk. Nobody wants to say, I need help. Be visible. Be visible to the academic.
1: And so if you were to build a utopian university, university.
0: Mm-hmm. What would that look like I think it would be the same thing that you were talking about before mm-hmm. you would simply start asking the university academics um, and again this is this is money this comes mm-hmm. all back to money to have an entire teaching workforce an entire research workforce is nearly double the academic staff and mm-hmm. so that's that's a difficult thing to manage particularly when the government is cutting funding to universities yeah because the, the whole corporate model, RIA, didn't come about just because people wanted wanted to be mean, mm-hmm. the corporate model came about because the government kept cutting and cutting and cutting funding to education. And so the universities had to start charging more and more, take more students in order to make up the windfall. Um, mm-hmm. They had to go overseas and bring in all those international students, yeah. which is where we all got bit in the backside when COVID hit because the funding all fell out the bottom. I'm <laughs> quite ignorant. It's up, Universities are for-profit organizations. They right? are now. Yep. So, so what
1: is a p- possible solution is making them non-profit organizations.
0: It's quite possible. Um, I don't know that you'll ever get the um, Sydney <laughs> University and those guys <laughs> to ever do that. Some of these people, some of these um, universities have massive investment portfolios like mm-hmm. property and stock. I mean, it's insane, you know, what they've got. It would be nice if they could change the culture. So even if you're going to stay with this corporate model, deal with the culture of the management. Academics are really treated like second-class mm-hmm. citizens at the university now. And we're the ones that are actually providing the commodity that the university is trying to sell.
1: And you started on the future of universities. So is it ugly?
0: I think they're going to continue to go up in um, price. I think they're going to still continue to follow the corporate model. I think that you're going to find that there's going to be less security within the academics. So there's going to be a lot of movement of academics where someone like me who's been at the university for 23 years, I think that will become a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see a lot more academics bouncing around to the better job, the more secure job. I think there's going to be some an instability at the university, particularly when a lot of us cronies that have been around for a long time, <laughs> retire, then yeah. your, your safety net has just been eliminated and you're left with all those new academics I was telling you about.
1: And, and I speak about this in one of my keynotes is that inexperienced workforce that just do not evolve beyond the very daily processes of what they're doing, yep. have failed to actually learn from us from the people yes. who've done it. In the well and
0: the university has no secession plan in place. Mm. So when an academic leaves, like myself, who basically has done the entire accreditation, well, when I leave, who who do they have targeted to do the accreditation documents? I'm fifty three planning on being done at 60. So, I, <laughs> I, so I've really got only about six, six years left. And the reason I say that Ria is I don't think I can handle any more. I think mm-hmm. I'll make it to 60. And, and that's when I can tap into my superannuation. I yeah. don't think I've got it in me to go any longer than that. The only thing keeping me at the university are the students.
1: And and speaking of students, what have been some of your memorables? Sh- I mean, besides me, clearly.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, I want to talk about my billion dollar idea. Okay, billion- yeah,
1: talk about your billion dollar idea first and we'll go into students.
0: Yeah, it's not a billion dollar idea. Well, one of the things I always wanted to do is because of all the things I've talked to you about with the demise of education and the struggles I'm having at uni, I've always toyed with the idea because... When you look at S accreditation, S accreditation says educational provider. Doesn't say it has to be a university providing accreditation. Ah. So I've done my homework. And as long as I can actually meet the accreditation requirement, I can actually run my own private provider education organization. So if I want to say Mark Brown's um, Clinical Exercise Physiology Institute, I can run something as long as I can find someone to provide the degree. And I could do that through the TAFE system with a diploma. Oh. And then I can teach it the way I want to teach it and hire the past students to come in and do units within it. And you basically get EPs teaching new EPs instead of academics.
1: I bags to run the workers' comp side of that. <laughs> I'll take that subject, Mark. So, yeah, so <laughs> like, that's, my,
0: that's my billion. Well, it's not a billion dollars. I think we can teach it better than the universities uh-huh. teach it, and the students would get more out of it, and I'd be more sane.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think oh, you've got to talk about healthy educators, healthy students. Yes. Healthy industry. Yes, it, It's the same thing. Healthy professionals, healthy patients, healthy industry. Yeah you're not going to be able to solve that entire problem or issue with the way the industry or um, universities are currently operating. How do we create change in a very particular
0: environment? Yeah, or you just jump ship altogether and start just, your own.
1: And start your, <laughs> I'll put my hand up on that. Oops, I've done if, that. If I've I done that a couple to, of times. If <laughs> time. I
0: decide to do it, I'll let you know.
1: Well, that's why I'm not an employee of any rehab provider. That's why I'm self-employed. Is because yeah. I went, I could do rehab in a very interesting, humanized way, and not in the way that I've been taught from a tick box. But I want to go back to what has been some of the absolute list or memorable things that have happened as an educator. Like what oh, have you seen students I actually just, do? I, you know,
0: my mom most I can't really say I have a most memorable student. I, I I wouldn't want to pick anyone. My favorite students are the ones that come back and tell me what they're doing and stay in touch with me because there's so many that I'd never hear from them again. Do you know Brent Collier? I do. Yeah. I yeah. Brent. So Brent killed me this year because Brent called me and he said, "Mark, you might want to sit down for this." And I said, yeah, "What's that?" And he goes, "I want to come and do a tour of the campus with my daughter." And I'm like, "Why is that?" And he goes, "Oh, because she graduates from high school this year." And she wants to do rehab. And so she'll be starting the degree with you at Wollongong because I don't want anyone else teaching her, but you. And I'm like, let me get this straight. Your child is now coming through my degree. <laughs> and it just made me feel about so old. I'm just chuffed when I see students that have carved their own way, you know, and I i am not that arrogant to think that I had that much to do with it. It's nice to see them succeed. And even if they've gone in a different direction and tried different and are doing different things, got students doing so many different things Mm -hmm. now. I mean, I've got a cardiac surgeon, Rhea.
1: Well, well, Mark. Look, let me just say this. I know that you mentioned it, you're not as arrogant. To say that you had a, a part and a role in people's lives. When speaking with people that I went to school with and people that I didn't go to school with but know you, you were
0: a huge part of a lot of our lives. Story, story wise oh, I had a student one year that came in in a half body cast. <laughs> he like the whole arm thing. Some of the comments when a student uses the wrong terminology in a presentation. Mm-hmm. (laughs) And it just changes the entire scenario. I don't think you students realize how hard it is for me <laughs> to keep it together because if I lose it during those presentations, everyone's going to lose it. And you know, remember we do ECG placement?
1: Oh my God, ECG placement. <laughs> yeah.
0: So ECG placement, and we had the girls wearing sports bras yes. and I had one kid one year. You can either tape the bra straps out or you mm-hmm. can tie them closer in to give you the room to put the electrodes. Yeah. Anyway, this kid put the electrodes on first and didn't tie the bra straps or tape them out. So Mm -hmm. I knew that it was just going to be in the way now because he'd done it backwards. But anyway, he, put the electrodes on and we're in the room and the partner he picked, I couldn't believe it. he was the most mild-mannered, wholesome, non-assuming conservative <laughs> young man you will ever come across sweet mm-hmm. as. And he picked the girl in class that had a mouth like a truck driver <laughs> and was just so bold and out there and in your face. So I'm in the room and there's probably about eight to 10 of us in there. And he got done hooking her up and he turns to me and says, um, Mark, um, can I tie her up now? <laughs> <laughs> and and I thought for a second, okay, the next words out of my mouth could potentially get me fired. <laughs> <laughs> and and I looked at him and I said, gee, I don't know. That's a very personal question. I think you'll have to ask her. And the whole class just died. He turned beet red and the girl was on the floor laughing. <laughs> so students, yeah, they, they do some funny stuff. I had a girl, two girls last year were getting so upset because they couldn't get the blood pressures. And I said, all right, I'll be right over. So I went over and I said, all right, take the blood pressure. Let me look at your technique and everything. And for the entire day, they said, we were getting it yesterday. We just can't get it today. Well, that day, the girl that was taking the blood pressure while the other girl was walking had her stethoscopes in her ears, but then had accidentally grabbed the bell of the stethoscope that was around (laughs) the girl that was walking and stuck that on the arm. (laughs) And, And I'm sitting here going, I think I know the problem. I love these stories, and it just keeps everything really light and airy. And, it's and super
1: nerve-wracking, though. Yes, well, and like it, can, it, it can be
0: very stressful, and I tried to tone it down a bit for students, and I said, listen, we're all going to get it. If I have to stay here till midnight, you're going to get it. I said... To stop freaking out, please.
1: Those labs are some of my absolute favorite places to hang out. And a shout out to my partner, Lisa Stewart, who, oh, um,
0: there's a name
1: we spend a lot of time undressed in front of each other and probing <laughs> and poking one another. <laughs> yeah, so any final words before we, we close off this episode? It's been really fun to talk to you. I don't you think is, I've ever well. spoken with you. <laughs> well, we don't I've get a chance. Mr. Brown, is this okay? I is my mathematical well, we equation proper? Well, we don't
0: get a chance to chat with students after they leave very much. Yeah, you know, we got to keep that professional relationship. So it's nice to actually <laughs> sit and chat with professionals in the area because at the end of the day, you guys know more about the industry than I do now. I was just kind of the, gave you guys your, um, driver's license to get out there and work, gave you the skill set to get started. But at the end of the day, you know, I I sound very negative in this thing about where education's heading and all that. Because of the students, Ria, I've had an absolute ball in my career and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I go to work to play, but um, when it is time to retire, I think I'll just on 30 years and that's a lot of years.
1: Thank you for coming onto the pod. But oh, you're welcome. More importantly, thank you for being the person that you are because you have impacted my life personally and a lot of other people's lives, and that is just super, super awesome. So Thank thanks. you very
0: much. I appreciate that.
1: The Intelligent Rebellion Podcast is a Three Sticks production. It is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ria Mikado. Will is the emperor of sound, mixing, and editing, and is a talent behind all our original music.